This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by eBay. This Father's Day, celebrate the guy who always makes the time with Rolex, Omega, Breitling, and more. Find modern and vintage watches with the authenticity guarantee at ebay.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 61 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Barry Lott from the band Camber. You may know that band name from the first Emo Diaries compilation on Deep Elm Records. They were track number two right after Jimmy Eat World. Great, great placement, boys. Camber is very special to me as they were the first CD that I was ever sent at the college radio station that I worked at and help kind of kickstart my journey into Deep Elm emo music in general. We talk about uh, band's history, the New York City scene in the 90s, and what's everyone up to right now. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hit me up on the internet, washedupemo.com. Enjoy. Thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. Um, so random, like to get your, uh, you know, to get your email, um, and then being like, well, actually, <laughs> I've been looking <laughs> for you. <laughs> Back from the dead. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, um, you know, it, it's a. Uh, I I think Joey or somebody from the band, um, uh, God, a couple of years ago maybe had mentioned, you know, hey, uh, there's this thing going on, and um, maybe you should get in touch with Tom and. And I, I think I was so into what I was doing at the time that I just, yeah, 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 I'll do it. And then stuff happened, and it just kind of left my brain um, as, as things do. And then at some point, it was funny, I was watching. Um, I, 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 I worked with some guys who um, were in the same kind of music that, that I am into and was into. And um, I was checking out, I found a, a mineral show from, from, from Manhattan, um, and... I was widening you guys like had posted it on, mm-hmm. on YouTube or something. And I'm like, wait a second, we freaking opened that show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that's, and so I went, you know, and checked out the site and I was like, Oh my God, you know, I just, I sat there for probably like an, you know, an hour, hour and a half, you know, it, 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 it's the point where it worked, like the light went out, out in the, out in the pulpit. <laughs> Everybody had left and I was just kind of sitting out there kind of, jamming through stuff and, and, and it really opened up a lot of a lot of doors and I remembered a lot of stuff I had actually forgotten about. So oh, right. um, it was just really cool. What really what really stuff were you looking at? Was it just the news page or was it the podcast episodes? Yeah, I, I started listening to podcasts and, and um and you know and, and, and just you know like a lot of names and a lot of things that you know that I hadn't thought about in a while. And um and it just 
you know, it, it was such a cool time, um, you know, the 90s and, you know, the, the, the early and mid and late 90s and, you know, and, and, and music in general and everything that was going on. Um, and the fact that we, you know, got to, you know, we had a kind of a front row seat to see a lot of it happen and um, they were involved in it in a little bit, which was nice. And, um, you know, it just, uh, it brought all that back, you know. Nice. And, um, yeah, so it was just super. And I, I think it's great that, you know, that you're keeping it alive and, um, and you know, there, there was just so much good music made back then. And, um, I mean, you know, people I, forgot I, I, I hate, it. Yeah. And I, I hate when it gets lost. I hate when, when bands today take, you know, band names from back in those days, it's like, you know, no, you're not freaking 30 out six. And, 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 and in truth, no, you're not Canberra. It's a, it's a British duo that, that's, that's like a kind of acoustic duo. And, oh, um, you know, they've, they've appropriated Canberra and it's like, you know, just do some research, man. You know, <laughs> a lot of names left out there. You don't have to use names of people, you know, basically, you know, um, so anyway, it's just, you know, stuff like that. It, it's, it's, it's such a, I don't know. It was, it was such a, just a wonderful time. And it was such a major part of our lives. And, um, and, and so it's just it's it's great to go back and, and kind of touch that again, you know. And yeah, um, no, I I think feel it's feel that again more than anything else. Yeah, that's the that's the feeling that I wanted to remember, and it got so tainted. And for me to kind of look back and and remember those, and no one was talking about these bands when I was starting out. Yes, there were people. Yes, people were listening to it, but there wasn't the you know there wasn't communities and and bands sort of rekindling that sound. Um, and for the listeners, I, I feel like I've told this story on the podcast. I've done enough episodes where I've probably told the story a thousand times or many of stories a thousand times, and I apologize. But this one is interesting. So Barry emails me. This is for the podcast. Barry emails me out of the blue, you know, hey, thanks for checking out the site, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'm like, oh my God, I've been looking, you know, to get in touch with you anyway. And Camber was the first record that Deep Elm and and also the first record I ever got at the college radio station, like addressed to wow. me. And so I remember, oh, what he, I know, you know, Chuck, you know, at Deep Helm had sent it and was like, you got to check this out. And, and it was just one of those. I still remember when I opened the package, I still remember where I was standing. Um, and so that's why I think it's really important that you're on and to talk about, you know, Camber because, at this time, I mean, if everyone, just to give everyone a little heads up, Camber was on the first chapter of the Emo Diaries, you know, and that had Jimmy Eat World, Lazy Kane, Sam I Am, Jejun, Pogo, Race Car Riot. This is, you know, the, you guys were track two, too. So at that point, you know, you threw it in a car. We were we were homers, though. We were on the label. So. But still, but still. We had, we had been an inside track. But still, I think everyone should kind of know that, that you guys were in the in in those worlds and uh you know definitely want to get into a lot of this and i think maybe that's a good sort of jumping off point i mean for you guys uh you were in new york city um what was sort of the you know deep elm at that time i mean it was basic back then too this was (laughs) when we ran the john um we had been kind of slogging along and um and we had we had seen i think in a zine somewhere or in the back of one of the music magazines, there was an ad that he, John was such a cheeky mother. You know, he was, he just was ballsy as hell. And he had a vision, a dream, and, and, and he just went about it, you know, in a really interesting way. But he had advertised for bands. Send me your demos, you know. And at the time, he was a seven-inch label, and he had a collection of really funky bands that were really quite wonderful. And it had nothing to do with, you know, quote-unquote emo at the time. 
Um, but bands ended up getting signed in majors. Um, not a surf, probably the most um, famous of them. Uh, but bands like Mueller, who had signed a major, um, and actually we had gone to see Mueller when we ran to John. Um, bands like Velour, who got ended up getting signed, and um, they were kind of a uh, a Radioheadish uh, band. They ended up changing the name to, to Closer um, in, a, in a in a bizarre act. It just you know, then they got signed to a major. They had like a psychedelic furs producer, and then he went to LA. But it was, it was this crazy group. Like Ruth Ruth was another amazing, you know, like trio, great band. But that was the that was the deep album that we that we found. And um, we ran into John, and I recognized he was wearing like a deep album hat or something. And um, and Jilly went up and handed him our demo. And um, and you know, John was like, yeah, yeah, I listened to it. Like, and he actually called us the next day. And was like, I've been listening to your record, like, you know, since you gave it to me last night and, you know, your, your, your tape. And, um, I, you know, I, I love it and I'd like to get together and talk. And we were like, yeah, I guess. And so at the time we were like on the label, we were the only, you know, band of our type that was doing what we were doing. But it was a, this loose knit kind of New York scene, New Yorkish scene. You had some guys from upstate, some guys from, you know, from, from around the area, some guys from Jersey, guys from Connecticut, um, you know, all on this label. And John used to throw these shows where we'd all go play together. So we'd, he'd have like five or six deep pound bands on a bill, and that'd be the night. You know, it was like a family. And like, it was the first time for us that we had been a part of anything that wasn't just this disparate kind of, you know. I don't think New York knew necessarily what to do with us at the time. Um, and it was at the back end of that whole, you know, kind of hardcore and post-hardcore scene, you know, like, you know, the quicksand era and, um, you know, we, we, you know, we freaking loved those guys, but you know, like helmet was big in those days in New York, but there were, there were some big New York bands, but there was no real New York scene. And this was years before Brooklyn even thought about happening, you know? Um, and, um, so we, we, we would play a lot of different shows and a lot of weird shows. And, um, it was only after a while that people started hooking us up First, we were opening up for a lot of weird major level bands and stuff like that. So, and, but eventually, we started get, getting hooked up with, with with emo bands that you know national bands, national acts that were coming through, like Sensefield, Jimmy Eat World, or you know Hot Rod Circuit, or um, you know, we played with Mineral Bunch and stuff like that. That actually, we started you know we were kind of the New York guys that would, would open up for a lot of those shows, um, and whether it be Coney Island High or Brownies or or you know Mercury Lounge or you know wherever Coney Island High was a big one. They they, they had great shows. That place was I missed that place you know, terribly. When I uh, but, um, I actually went into that venue uh, in, during one of my I think it was my first CMJ and yeah. they the it was a relapse showcase. It was like a hardcore you know metal showcase, wow. and they wouldn't yeah. let me in. And I said all I want to do is get a T shirt. And so, and so the guy, the bouncer guy was like, you know, six times my height and, you know, was like, all right, give me your wallet. And me being, you know, 19 or something, I was like, okay. So I handed him my wallet and took a 20 out, got a shirt and walked back out and he handed me my wallet and I left. But I was just like, wow, I had a lot of trust into a bouncer on 8th Street in 1997. (laughs) (laughs) Great venue. Oh, that was a great place. You could play, you play upstairs in that little bar, or you could play downstairs in the big room, which you know, it was, it was a great stage. It was a great place to, and then there was a great band room downstairs. And did you um, associate I, 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 yourself I with emo? Did you associate with it when those bands would come through? Because I mean, listening yeah, ab- back, ab- absolutely. Um, in, in those days, I mean, we 
we knew what we were doing. I mean, we we had we had decided on what kind of band we wanted to be, even though we listened to a lot of different stuff. I, I think that that the, 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 we had all played in another band before that really wasn't part of that scene. Um, but it was still the kind of the kind of stuff we did was very emotionally based, and that was what brought Corby and, and me together. Was um, I was really hurting after um, the breakup of a of a relationship, and Corby had been through an, an accident that really you know took his toll emotionally. And so for us, playing together was an outlet, and it was always very emotional. Um, what we did was very emotional, and so the, the, the kind of moving into this space was. Um, it just felt comfortable to us. And we, we listened to so much stuff, you know, at, at the time. Um, it, it probably wasn't considered emo necessarily, um, but maybe it was a precursor to emo, you know, and um, a lot of indie rock um, that had, you know, maybe emotional, you know, underpinnings. Um, so to move into this, you know, we fell in love with Sunday Real Estate. Um, and I think at the time people associated us, well, they sound a lot like Sunny Day. Um, or they sound a lot like mineral, or they sound a lot like braid. Or, um, but for us, we were we were trying to pull in a lot of different stuff that we were listening to. So, and we were total like um, we, were, we were total Chavez fan. And I don't know if you ever got into Chavez, but um, I, I think you know the four of us. You know, if you if you were to get into any of our cars right now, if there's going to be one thing on that we all had in common, you know, we'd still be at the Chavez record. Um, and we were just freaky for those guys. And um, we were you know, huge Archers of Lowe's fans and, and huge Pond fans. And um, so it, we, we kind of took all that stuff. So that notion of, 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 of emo or the emotional delivery, you know, emotional lyrics or things that were really personal to us that, that I had to get out, you know, that, that I would write about very personal things, at times almost too personal. Um, and... And then, you know, with kind of a, a, an atonal or a dissonant element or a math element. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the playing, yeah, the, you know, Joey was big on playing chords, you know, which is something that we really loved about, um, you know, Pond did that and 30 Out 6 did that. Um, and that was something really dug. And he was, you know, Joey's such a great bass player. He was able to do that stuff. But that gave us a certain, so we kind of combined all this stuff and, 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 worked our way through it. But we knew eventually that, that we felt at home in that emo scene. It made sense to, to us to be married, you know, to those bands or to be you know, at first opening for those bands in New York and then traveling out, you know, away from New York to play like these big festivals at like Wilkes-Barre, you know, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, you know, or, or Asbury Park where you're playing, you know, these, you know, these two-day festivals with nothing but, you know, emo bands. Like that Wilkes-Barre thing was like, well, the first day was all like hardcore a hardcore band. The second day was like, you know, um, some amazing, you know, um, emo or more emo bands. Um, and so it, it, it felt right to be in that scene. Um, and especially like in that, in the mid nineties, it felt really good to be in that scene. I think what happened later, um, we got, it, like, it started, it started sounding very derivative to us and started, and we were growing as a band and, and adding elements. And, but in that, you know, and so to us, you know, moving a, moving away from that was okay. But in that, like, you know, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, man, you know, that, that was, it felt like home, you know, it felt really good. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, you know, if you, if you got, if you listen to the emo diaries track, Sunday Browning or Sunday Brown and green, it sounds like Sunday day real estate. It's okay. Um, you know, if you listen to the second record, um, it's, you know, there's some quicksand in there. And then if you listen to the last record, wake up and be happy, there's some indie rock. And I almost hear, I mean, it feels like indie rock to me, a lot of it, but you like, 
But I think at that time, that's what it was doing. That's what the sound was. Um, and not saying that you guys were doing what was happening, but that's just sort of the the vibe of the indie rock scene. And you guys were just a little more emotional. And then that's what sort of turned, you know, for you to play with Jimmy Eat World or play with Mineral because it fit um, either the yeah. lyrics or, you know, the vocal delivery. Um, because it's, I mean, it sounds, you know, if, to me, it's like, you know, there's some, you know, super fuzzy tones, which I love. Um, you know, it's, it's dirty. Um, but then there's that sort of emotional undercurrent, which I think for a lot of people that weren't around then to think that that was emo was a little, there's a little disconnect. It's like, wait a minute, it's supposed to be this. And I'm like, actually there, it makes sense because of the time they were in the city, all those things that were sort of happening. Um, and of course being associated with deep Elm, um, over the years kind of just catapulted that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it, 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 and actually, you kind of charted out our, our arc in terms of how we developed those, those three records. Um, it, I think that, you know, it's funny. Each, each record was very different. Each record was sonically different. Um, we were lucky enough to, to work with John and Yellow on the first two records, um, which was like one of the best experiences of my life. It was like going to, you know, get your, getting your you know, MBA at Harvard or something. The guy was a, a genius. He was not only a great engineer, but he was a great producer. Um, he had a great ear. He understood how to how to arrange and, and, and how to orchestrate and and also give you a great experience in the studio. Um, the guy was just he could get the best out of you. You know, if you look at his, at his discography, you know, I think that the, we were just lucky that he actually agreed to work with us. Um, but you know, each of each of those three records was sonically different. The first record um, was you know songs that we had written, you know, when we first came together as a band, we played a million times, we performed a million times. Um, the second record was a band that or what was a record that reflected um yeah, a, a shift in the way we wrote, um, and and some lyrical content that was very close to home, um, that I avoided writing for a long time. Um, and then finally sat down and did it. Um and it you know, and, and that was that was a really emotional um it's just right. You know, you're talking about you know emotion. It was truly an emotional um, recording. That stuff um, was really emotional and, and really interesting and really special. And and then the third record was um, we had we had um, Chris had, our drummer had moved to San Francisco, so um, we worked with Roger, who was a childhood friend of, of Joey, our bass player's. Um, and he gave us a different feel <clears throat> and, and 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 pushed us in a different place. Um, much more of a rock drummer, um, more more bombastic. Um, and so, you know, things shifted in terms of responsibilities within the band, but also I kind of went back to the stuff I'd been listening to back in the early nineties. And that really informed a lot of the writing that we did. So, you know, you talked about more indie rock and it was very, it was very indie rock. It was, you know, the stuff that, that we had listened to back in the nineties, um, that, 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 you know, we loved so much, but even things like, um, like, you know, just hanging out with Lazy Kane and listening to a lot of their records. And I think that the first song on that record, um, Devil You Know, was like a, that was like a, a Lazy Kane song to me. I basically wrote a Lazy Kane song, you know, off of a crisp drum riff, you know. But um, the phrasing was very much, you know, what they had done and what I loved about those guys. You know, another band that kind of, you know, <clears throat> was amazing when they were, you know, they, I think they were, they were on the first Emo Diaries, but you talk about a great band that never seemed to ever really blow up and should have, you know, oh my God. You know, it's funny is I worked it. with one of the guys in Lazy Cane at a job in New York and someone really? told me, yeah, someone told me, they were like, um, 
uh, that guy's in some band that I think you're kind of into. And I'm like, what? Like he's, uh, he's in lazy cane. I'm like, get out. And so it was John major from lazy. And, uh, oh my God. and so oh, I, that guy, that guy was, that guy was a shit hot guitarist. You did. He, he's, he, taught, he uh, rips, man. He, oh God. So he, so he, I, I totally embarrass him. This is like probably my, I, I don't, I forget <laughs> when I brought it up, but I was like, dude, just so you know, giant lazy cane fan and he was like oh geez and so we ended up being really good friends and i still talk to him all the time but he gets so embarrassed because anytime i'm with him and he introduces me um i introduce him as john from lazy cane just because i know no one else knows but it's just funny for me um (laughs) but yeah like those guys you know i I, I saw them you know i think i saw at the drive-in lazy cane jimmy world tour um you know that's when i saw them in college um But I think for, you know, like those bands, and I think you're really coming from this really ground level time because the communities were still forming. You know, you talking about getting into indie rock, when I spoke to Eric Richter from Christie Front Drive, I met him a long time ago and he, I asked him, what did you listen to to make that record, the first Christie Front Drive? And he said, Buffalo Tom. And so I just think these these moments where, you know, most of the bands that I talked to from that era mentioned Fugazi or mention, you know, a lot of the DC stuff. And I love the lineage because you can hear it still. Um, and I think you guys still had that same sort of push. And I know it's a long answer rambling sort of story, but I think it's kind of getting at that you guys were in this really special time that it was connected to the, you know, mid you know, nineties indie rock, but you had this hardcore bands happening influence. And then, there was this emotional undertone. I just think maybe for that first record or those first couple records, what were some of those moments that you kind of felt that this thing was going to take off or that these bands were going to do something? Um, you know, for, for, for us, it was, you know, I really appreciate that. We, we were lucky enough that we, you know, we, we slogged in obscurity for, for a while where we were able just to, to, to figure out how to be a band and how to write and how to play. Um, so I think we were ready when, when we got to, you know, when we had some good opportunities and we got to play. Um, but I just remember once we, you know, it, it, again, like I said, there was so much good music going on at that, at that point in time. And then, you know, you, you actually, I'm excuse me, you actually, um, were able to, to go see these, these, these amazing bands in small venues with 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 people. I remember the first time I saw Jimmy Eat World. I think I saw them. Um, there was a place called Under Acme um, near the Bowery, and they played. Um, and there might have been Acme Underground, right? People, yeah, Acme Underground, yeah. yeah. Um, and there might have been thirty or forty people there, you know. And the scuttlebutt was these guys signed at the Capitol. They were the only band in the scene that was on a major at the time. Um, but you know, it, it's you, you could. The thing is, is that during that period in, in New York, especially New York, was a hard music town. You know, everybody was really, um, you know, those in the business were really in the business, and 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 they were really difficult to deal with, oftentimes, um, and, and opinionated and, and kind of snarky. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was it was a tough place to to be a band in a lot of ways. And I, I think part of of what we our development as a band was was, was basically. Hard place to be a band number one. Where do you rehearse? How do you get to the gig? You know, do you have a van? Where do you park? Um, you know, the expense of that, the, the sheer expense of just doing that. Um, how do you find? You know, when you know, do you, do you find shows? How do you find shows? Where do you find shows? Um, where do you find good shows? 
Um, and all of that, I think, kind of came out. We, we, we were proud of being a New York band because it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy place to be a band at all. And, um, and it wasn't an pl- easy place to be a band just because, you know, the reception you got oftentimes. So I think for us, we knew that something was going on when more and more people were coming to our shows, but more and more people were coming to shows that we were going to. And those shows started, you know, you, you'd go see a band that you liked at Brownies, um, and then you saw them at Mercury, and you saw them at Coney, and the next time they came, they were playing Irving Plaza, and then it was, you know, it blew up from there. But it, it's like these, these, over the years, these bands got bigger and bigger. You know, going to see Dinosaur Jr., you know, somewhere really small, and then, you know, they were playing, you know, the, what was the, you know, the old Studio 54, and then they were playing, you know, just it, it, it exploding, you know, and um, and so it, it, I, I think that, that we, we could tell the scene was, was growing and getting big. And then we would go out, you know, to play shows. Um, and New York's a great place to be a band because you can, you can be in Boston or you can be in DC or you can be in North Carolina or you can be in, you know, in Pittsburgh or, um, you know, so easily. Um, and, and, and there's so many great places to play from, from Boston, you know, all the way down to, to Atlanta, you know, and, and it's, it's all really accessible. Um, if you guys who had jobs like we did and couldn't go out for long periods of time, it was great to be able to just kind of bang around, you know, the, you know, kind of west or, or east of the Mississippi, and you know, and staying kind of in our zone. But that—that's why I think we knew something was going on. For us, um, I think our first South by Southwest trip, which was right before our record broke, um, is the first time we really got a lot of attention um, from either the press. And when I say the press, it was, you know, you know, people, you know, stapling, um, you know, copying, um, <laughs> you know, zines on their, on their work, you know, uh, you know, copy machine and stapling them together. And then, you know, and then basically taking people's, you know, money orders for, for $3 and, and then, you know, mailing them something, which I still find, you know, I was actually talking to a friend about that the other day. I was like, you know, that's, that's how we got all our information. You know, now, you know, it, it takes me two minutes to figure stuff out where before it might take me two months, you know. Um, but that for us, it was, it was, it was South by Southwest was a huge stuff. I remember sitting at breakfast with Joey, um, during our first South by Southwest trip and, and going, Hey man, you know, this is, this is going to happen. You know, just, you know, be prepared to quit your job and <laughs> become rock stars. <laughs> and, um, that never really happened, but, but it was, it was still pretty awesome. And, um, and, you know, I think for us in New York, going, playing shows, and having a lot of people show up that we didn't know. Um, there was a period of time where we were playing a lot of shows, and and we were filling up, you know, rooms, albeit small rooms, but there was nobody we knew there. And so it, I thought, well, okay, maybe we're on to something now. Maybe something's going on, and maybe people are, were starting to pay attention. Or you'd go to another show, and some, you know, body would walk up to you and go, hey, man, you know, I saw you guys play at, you know, at Mercury, you know, two weeks ago, and it was an awesome show. Or a bartender, you know, somewhere on Avenue A would buy you a beer because, you know, he liked your band. Um, and, you know, so that's, for me, um, you know, um, that's when I knew that maybe we were gaining some traction and maybe people were paying attention and listening. And, and that was, was pretty heady stuff, you know, for, you know, a bunch of guys that we were working stiffs who, you know, worked at you know, large advertising agencies and stuff like that. So we had, like, day jobs, but, you know, and, and like, <laughs> legit day jobs. And then at night, we were actually going out and doing this other stuff, which was, was kind of cool. So that, for us, I think, you know, as, as, as Camber, when we really knew things were, were happening. But, you know, you could, you could feel it when you played shows or, the, you know, the bills that were coming through or the stuff that was going on. 
Um, yeah, New York obviously is, is, a, is, was always a place that everybody wanted to play. Maybe not during the winter, but you know, you could see anybody and on some nights, you know, I mean, some nights you, you look at, you know, whatever, you know, and, uh, and, you know, my rockness and you go, well, there's three shows I'd like to go see and, um, you know, <laughs> can only go to one of them. And yeah. Yeah. Or you like have to time it out. You're like, all right, well, yeah. if they play at eight thirty, and they better not be bullshitting, and it's eight thirty, not nine. I can make the other one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the that's, um, I mean, that's an embarrassment of riches. You know? I know it's really it's uh, oh maybe I'll go to the third night, not the second night, because I heard there's a special guest on the third night. Everyone's rolling <laughs> their eyes at us. Um, yes, that exactly does happen. Um, and then I think too, I mean. New York City, I've lived here for off and on for 10 years um, and lived you know, elsewhere, but I feel like this place is an interesting place to be a band, like you said, and having those bands come through. Was that, uh, you know, obviously w- when you guys were on Deep Elm and you had them on, you know, you were on there for the career. I'm not sure what contract you signed, but it seemed like pretty crazy because they were releasing everything um, that you guys did. Um, and I know there was some, you know, some. there's been some choice things said about Deep Elm over the years, have, have, did you guys have any issues? Was there was there anything toward the end that sort of maybe led to the end of the band, or was it just you guys were you know one of the early ones and maybe got in before they started adding all the? <laughs> I just you know there were some stories about you know if it was tour support or you know not helping or things like that that I think got around, especially then and kind of tainted the the label a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I all, all I can say is, you know, you speak to our experience, um, you know, and and probably the, the label, the last thing you want to happen is for four of your bands to be sitting, you know, backstage in a band room somewhere drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and talking about you know, the label. It's like, you know, um, it's like being at work and, you know, sitting around and, and talking to your colleagues about what you're getting paid. But, um it's probably stuff that, that the label doesn't want to get out, um, you know, because I'm sure everybody had a different deal. You know, we, we were, all I can say is that John was nothing but, you know, super good to us, and he worked his ass off for us, and he took a chance on a, you know, a bunch of idiots who, um, you know, were kind of feeling around, you know, in the dark, and um, and he just did so much for us. And, um, and you know, we were lucky enough to, to make records. You know, first we were like, well, let's make a, you know, Take a split seven, and then let's make a you know, a, you know, maybe a you know a split EP, and then maybe we could you know, maybe we could you know, and we, it, you know we never dreamed that we'd actually you know make a, and, and the, the extra conversations we have with John, you know, we're going to make a, a record, you know, we're going to make you know, record nine songs with John and Yellow at, at, at Water Music, and you know, and Hoboken, and, and then we're going to go you know have Greg Cavity like master it, and, and you know people are actually going to buy it and see so put it on the radio you know, sometimes and. Um, I think that to us was just incredibly heady stuff. But John made all that stuff happen. In a lot of ways, he was learning on the job. Mm-hmm. So we were, in a lot of ways, his you know his trial board. We were his test case, and so he was like, "All right, well, let's you know." And so he had a lot of faith in us, and if he felt good enough about us to say, "Hey, here's here's the first. We were the first CD that he made. Um, and you know, everybody else, you know, we'd all made." If you go back and look at the Deep Elm site, there's this great, um, all those sevens that he made, they all have that colored vinyl and it was really thick vinyl and it was really like quality and, and all the cover art was fantastic. You know, it was really cool. And, um, and so he went from that and then jumped, you know, into, you know, our, our CD was really the first CD that he pressed. And he did it right, you know, and, um, and, you know, and so, and he, he you know, he pushed, he had McGaffey, you know, working at record and radio and, um, and those guys did a great job, and you know, and so he really, 
he helped us out a great deal. And and you know we our part of the bargain was you know write good songs, play your ass off when you're on stage. You know try not to get you know too intoxicated to where you do something stupid and embarrass yourself. And um, you know do as much press as much radio. You know play as you know as many you know be wherever he can find you a play that's you know in driving distance. Um, go do it. Um, I think our big thing with John is we just we couldn't take long periods of time off and go on the road. And that's probably, you know, if he was going to break a band, he probably needed a band to really get out there, you know, and, and, and bust it. You know, Appleseed Cast was that band. They were able to go out there and live on the road. Those cats, man, they, they, they had like a van with, <laughs> with like, you know, bikes and the whole thing. I mean, they were, they were in it for, you know, for the long haul. And um, that was the kind of band he needed. And it, I think probably that's not, you know, because of, we basically, you know, we became, you know, Appleseed Cast was, you know, was right behind us in terms of the records that John released. And, you know, those, those, those dudes were out there, like, you know, working their asses off on the road. And um, I think to this day, probably his most successful band from the genre, possibly, um, in terms of, you know, of, of just records sold and influence and number of fans and, and, and stuff. And uh, um, it's because they worked so hard. You know, at a time when that's the only way you could get out there. Um, so, you know, it, it, but, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of dirt to, to dig. No, I didn't ask for dirt. I just thought of, yeah, there, yeah. I just think there's, I no, mean, it, it, you guys experiences, I just think that label at that time, there was things where I think it was growing and I think people yeah. maybe had ex- expectations. I mean, I worked at a label that there were bands that they thought that they got signed and all of a sudden they were going to be huge and start headlining Warp Tour. Well, guess what? You still got to go through the work. You still have to do the thing. So I'm sure it's both sides. Um, things don't just happen like that and um, things break a certain way or you get the right tour or you get the right review and you're off to the races or it doesn't, um, but you still kind of do. So I wasn't, I mean, uh, yes, I was asking for dirt because I want people to listen to the podcast, but two, I just thought there might, you know, there's the, there's an interesting time then because there was only, there was a limited amount of things to do and a limited amount of money. It wasn't like this was huge. People, you know, the, this was not a big scene. This was not MTV. This was not on the radio other than college and maybe specialty that there, there wasn't like a mainstream look to it. Yeah. You know, part, part of being on the road was you were out there, you know, selling, selling product, you know, selling, selling records and, um, you know, and flying the flag and getting the name out there. And, um, you know, that was part of the distribution, you know, um, plan. It was part of the program was, you know, we'll get into indie record stores and, and, you know, and we'll, we'll do the best we can with catalog sales. Um, which were, it's funny because I was um, actually uh, at a friend's Super Bowl party uh, a few years ago, maybe longer than that, four or five years ago. And um, the guy has just got an amazing, um, his roommate had an amazing record collection. And I pulled down, there was a band, I can't remember who it was, it was on Crank, and I pulled out um, the insert from, from, the, from the seven, and um, and the, the Craig catalog was in there, you know, and he at the time was not just selling his own stuff, he was selling other stuff too in his catalog. And we were actually in the catalog, which I, you know, it's kind of a blast in the past, but I was able to, you know, show the room. See, I actually wasn't. Um, <laughs> it but, was the, uh, um, was it the one that was like a rectangle? Or sorry, no, a square. Um, was it a square? And then it sort of unfolded from there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. Cranked, you know, was selling a bunch of stuff then. Um, yeah. What did you um, when you guys were? You know, I guess the band ended in two thousand three. Was it that everyone was moving on to something else, or your jobs took you away, or what was sort of the what was sort of the end? Well, 
I, I think that, um, that, that you know, all of the above. It was a, a situation where um, where we, um, you know, when Chris when Chris left to go to San Francisco, he did it for a great career opportunity, and um, and so you know we were able to, to replace him with Roger and made the third record, and we did everything we could. Um, you know, we got we got some shit for the third record, I think, um, and it was at a time where you know we got called out and. Um, and people talked about they, they ripped the record pretty good um, in some in some circles, um, and yeah, it was, it, we didn't work with John. Um, we worked with a guy named Wayne Durrell, who actually was the assistant on on Beautiful Parade, our first record. Wayne's a really really talented guy. Um, he was running his own studio at the time, and um, and we were really comfortable with Wayne, and we had a long term relationship with him. And um, so we figured, you know, let's try this on our own, see what we can do with Wayne, and. Um, you know, in hindsight, I wish that, that we, yeah, I think John could have made that record special. Um, it had, it was really, it was a well-written record, I think. Um, I think John just, his, his production touches and his, his ability to, to help us, um, you know, kind of compose or recompose or rearrange. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I think it was a little bloated. Uh, it was the first time we'd ever used anything that was automated. Um, so we used Pro Tools and we, we obsessed and we screwed around with them because adding stuff that we shouldn't have. John, John, John was an analog guy. He now was Pro Tools guy. In the old days, you know, he was like splicing tape and you know, and and everything was was analog and it was all hands on deck. And we did mixes and we got two or three mixes and um, and so it was it was very it was very um, streamlined um, and and so you could only get so much in. You only had so much time. You had to work fast. And you had to live with it. And um, that's what he specialized in. And um, we made those records, those first two records, in in, in astounding, you know, short period of time. Um, you know, both of them. But um, so anyway, we we went and you know we, we played behind that record, um, and then Corby ended up moving to to, to you know, the other you know, the lead guitarist in the band, you know, sort of the lead guitarist. Um, Corby moved to Portland, uh, and we we replaced Corby with Chris, the original drummer's brother-in-law, and and. Dave did a great, uh, you know, he did a great Corby impersonation, but also had a lot to add. He was a great vocalist, so we were able to do some things we hadn't done before. And we actually did that that, that little kind of split EP that we did um, with Seven Story um, and Branson. Which, why isn't that on streaming services? I was just noticing that. That that EP is nowhere to be found. I I don't know. Um, And there there, are three songs that we did on there um, that we did, you know, at that, that band, that configuration. Um, with Dave playing guitar, and um, and uh, uh, it was, you know, I, it, I really liked it. I liked those three songs um, a lot. And and actually, um, uh, the, the the last song we recorded, it was a nice bookend, and it was actually about the band coming to an end. So I had a feeling at that point that the song was very much, you know, about the notion of saying goodbye. And, and the lyrics were all about just basically hanging it up. And um, and I had a pretty good feeling at that point that's where we were we were moving. And, um, and it just, you know, I, I think at some point somebody said, I can't believe the band was breaking up. And they said, you know, the, the band is a wonderful thing and a terrible thing because it really is, it, it's, it retards your growth. It, it is guaranteed to not allow you to move forward in your life. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of tied, you're tied to adolescence in a lot of ways. And, and being in a band is, is very much about, about that. And it's hard to have adult responsibilities unless you're, you know, <laughs> you know, making a lot of money. Um, and, and are able to, to so it, it kind of retards growth in a lot of ways. And I think at that point, you know, Joy was talking about 
walking away, and that was the last member. So I, I had to ask myself, well, you know, so it's going to be basically the, you know, the Barry Lot band with three guys I didn't start with. And although I loved those guys, we were already, you know, uh, working with a new bass player. And we were in Connecticut one night. I just remember thinking, you know, uh, it's cold, and, and, and I missed home, and um, and I thought, you know, I think it's probably a good time to fold the tent. And so um, so we did. And it was, it was a natural end. It was a, you know, it was, it was a good time to end. And, um, and I think we felt good about the, the run that we had. Um, but, you know, it was, it was hard to do because, you know, you're, you're attached to it. And, and it, it's not, it's just about being able to, to hang out together and play together. And, um, and you know, oftentimes, I think a lot of bands would say, when, when you stop being a band together, you just don't see each other as much as you used to. Mm-hmm. And you go from seeing each other, you know, five, six times a week um, and bonding over the thing you love most in the whole world. Um, it's like, you know, being, being out is, is like, it's like a road trip with your best friends and you get to, you get to go see a great show and oh, you get to play a set too. <laughs> like, great. That's awesome. You know, and you drink some beers and hang out and see some bands you really like and then, oh, you know, we, we get to play for an hour. Cool. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a wonderful thing, but I think, you know, to answer your question, that, that natural end, it was definitely time. Um, you know, and, and maybe we'd ever stayed a, a welcome by, by a year or two. But, um, you know, it was, I think, you know, we pulled the tent and felt pretty good about it. Is anyone else doing music? Are you doing music now? Did you do stuff after Camber? Or, or was that kind of it? I, and then you kind of went into real life and work? And Yeah, I was like a recovering heroin addict, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, where I, I'd say, you know, I, or an alcoholic, I'd even walk into a bar. It was one of those things where, you know, I, I had to really distance myself from it completely um, to make sure that I was completely weaned off. And, I messed around a little bit and um, helped some people make some records and, and stuff after, um, but even that was too close to it. And I, I think um, the guy who really um, kept playing, still playing today, is Joey, our bass player. And he um, he's played um, he's played bass in a lot of bands. He's played guitar in a lot of bands. Um, he's done tribute band stuff. He's doing some solo stuff. And he just he stayed with it. And and then Dave um, Dave Brown who, who replaced Corby um, for the for the splitting tea and, and for the last, I think probably a year or so that we're messing around. Um, still does stuff. He still plays. And, um, he was in a couple, a couple of bands, um, you know, on the scene as well before we actually joined Canberra. So I think he still messes around a bit. And, um, but I think that's it. I know so, that, um, so, so for you, you said earlier that you, or just a bit ago that you sort of were going through some stuff that was, a little tougher and sort of the, you know, the recovery, was that, was that a, another part of the kind of the band being like, I just can't be in these situations anymore? Um, no, it, it wasn't, it was, um, for me, music and playing music is, is a, is an all or nothing kind of thing. And I, I think I realized about, you know, that about myself is that I can't do it casually. I can't mess around with it. It's, you know, if I'm going to do it, I, you know, and that's, that's, I think ultimately, you know, I, I just, I become obsessed and I become overly committed, and you know, and then you start neglecting other parts of your life. You know, I mean, it wasn't a big, it wasn't like a chemical dependency, <laughs> the problem with alcohol. But I, I think probably you know, maybe in the, in the mid to late nineties, people may have, you know, <laughs> probably had some kind of weird, you know, drinking issue. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, but uh, you know, we definitely like to, you know, to, to have a couple of beers before we play, and, and sometimes during, and then certainly after. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, hell who doesn't. But um so, you know, the, the thing is is that that for me, I, I think that the only way I could really get away from it was to get away from it. And 
And if I, you know, if I'd taken a half step out, I would have gotten sucked right back in. And I think a lot of people have that problem. And it's not the, it's, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the process, it's the creative process, it's the, it's the beginning of the play together. Um, but then that's not enough. I, I can't go in a room with these guys. Well, we'll just play in the room, you know? It's like, well, what if we could play a show? Well, you know, then what if we could play a bunch of shows, you know? <laughs> well, what if we record something, you know? And, and so it, it's, and that's how it started, you know? And, and you fall right back in that cycle. And it's very easy to do. You know, we, we talk sometimes, you know, it's, it's a, whether we show up for somebody's wedding or, you know, somebody's funeral or somebody's, you know, whatever, there's always, you know, hey, you know, maybe we should go, you know, get the band. We could play a Candor reunion show, you mm-hmm. know, which is a, a really good and bad idea. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a good idea because it'd be great for us, you know. It's a bad idea for a lot of reasons. Um, the biggest part, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely afraid that like, nobody would show up. <laughs> like, you know, we started playing out, you know, and there's like one guy in the back of the dark and you just hear... <laughs> you know, thank you, the guy in the back, you know, in the dark. Thank you very much, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I think that, you know, to answer your question, that, that that was why I had to, you know, completely, you know, just not do it. And, you know, I, I messed around with friends. Um, <clears throat> and, and I was lucky enough that, that my when I moved from New York down to Florida, I'm actually from Florida, so I moved home. And uh, ended up working um, at a place that, that actually had <laughs> it was wonderful. It had a band kit, so we had we had guitars and amps and drums and PA and the whole thing. And and so we would like every night about six o'clock <clears throat> we'd start like jamming, you know, and we'd play for for a while. And that was that was a wonderful just release and, and ability to be able to still play and, and mess around and um, but with no expectations of, of doing anything other than, than just that, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. So, what what are you doing now? What have you, what have you been up to the last uh, the last twelve years? <laughs> <laughs> God, that's not ever, not not all um, twelve years. But what 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 are you up to now? Are you are you still? Um, you got you had mentioned ad agencies earlier. What what are you sort of in? Are still you working in business? Um, I, I left the business for a while, and actually, when it, when, it, when we moved down to to Florida, um, uh, I opened a uh, a high end dog boutique. Really? Um, which is that was every, yeah, everybody had an escape from New York plan, and that was um, that was um, our escape from New York plan. Um, it was an ill-conceived escape from New York plan, but it was you know it, it got us out of New York and um, it got us back home, and that lasted probably a couple of years, and we sold it off, and then I got back in the business, um, got back in advertising, and I've been doing that since 2006, I guess. Um, well, are you an art? Are you an art art director, copywriter, CD? Crazy enough, I'm, I'm a strategy guy. Oh, okay. So yeah, n- none of us were creative, um, which which I found interesting. Um, <laughs> when we all met, um, Corby and Chris were media guys, and uh, I was an account guy, and we all worked on Procter and Gamble. So it was kind of a weird, you know, our, our gay lives were very different than our lives, and it was it was like, you know, we were we were all about you know flying back and forth to Cincinnati, and um, you know we worked at a, at a top five advertising agency, and there was a lot of you know, pressure. It's a lot more corporate than you think. Um, you know, the, the whole notion of an advertising agency is, is when you work in a place like that on something like Procter, it's not, you know, it's not freewheeling and, and, and loads of fun. It's kind of just the opposite. So, um, especially in the media or account management. So, um, but that's that's actually where we met and how we got together. And that I think our day jobs actually pushed us into basically what became our night jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 
yeah, Corby still Corby works at a um, at a at a large agency in uh, in Boston, and Chris uh, works at a large agency in in New York. And I work um, now at a joint down uh, in Palm Beach, um, and uh, got a hundred person digital firm. So we are, we're all still in the business. Um, Joey still does what he does in New Jersey, and um, <laughs> we all kind of spun back into you know into our old lives. I guess we uh, you know became what ultimately we were supposed to do. That's great. Well, that's cool. That's all the questions I had. Well, thanks, man. I I, I um I, I I appreciate you know the, the time. I appreciate what you do. You know, to kind of keep the flame alive and. Um, you know, I, I find it really cool. Number one, that, that, um, a lot of emo bands are getting back together, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, are, and are playing shows again. I mean, Mineral came through last year and they actually played Gainesville, which I, I really wanted desperately to see, um, and just couldn't get up there to, to do it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I I certainly um, encourage you know everybody out there who used to be in an emo band you know or a band of that era you know to get back together and, and play some shows because there are a lot of people out there that would love to see you play that's for sure well uh, it's I would, you know, well I, it's funny there was uh you know Boys Life just came through and did some four shows and it was really fun to see them and Christopher Mineral flew up to New York and we all hung out and you know they were they were super rad to hang out with and then. A couple days after, you know, Promise Ring announced again they're going to do Nothing Feels Good in its entirety on New Year's yeah, Eve in yeah. Chicago. What was funny is this kid wrote me on you know Twitter and was like, "Oh man, I'm not 21 yet." And it's like this band is reunited in 06. <laughs> they reunited in 2012, but there's still people finding out about them and listening. And I think there's such a beautiful thing about the internet now that you can go back and. Um, listen and experience, and yes, you weren't there, and yes, maybe you can read as as much as you can, but you don't know, or, or you, you don't know the full story. But at least you've got this knowledge of well, he knew who that band was, and he realized and he liked it, and it's from before he was even born or whatever, <laughs> you know. And there, and uh, so I, that's the really cool part about doing the site, and I think having people remember these bands is that there's newer fans coming up every single day. It's not just they're dying off because they liked, you know, an older, if they're Elvis fans, you know, well, there's no more Elvis music. Yes, people are inspired by him, but there's something about that time period that bands are copying or uh, not copying, it's a bad word, but they're they're listening and... Inspired by it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're inspired by it, and that's continuing to this day. And that said to me that this scene and that era before the internet, and yes, there was the internet, but before it really broke, that was a special time. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And you know, a lot of that stuff, a lot of it holds up so incredibly well. You know, um, you can go back and listen to, to the quote-unquote classic records, and they truly are classic records. Um, they... They, um, you know, they, 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 they kicked ass in, you know, in 95 and they kick ass and, you know, in, in 2015 and, you know, it's still just as good. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, that to me is, is encouraging. I think a lot of people are finding it because it does hold up, you know, it, it's, it wasn't ephemeral. It wasn't just something people made that just went away, you know, um, that this stuff, you know, the, the, all these bands, um, whether they were, you know, in that, in that hard target of, it's funny. There's 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 that you know, quote unquote you know list of you know, the most influential emo bands or when when, when emo is talked about the same 15 bands always pop up. But there are another 30 or 40 bands you know that, that are that are off that list that were just as good, just as influential. You know, kicked as as much ass and were incredible live, 
and then have records out there that just you know, will kill you, you know, and um, and all that stuff holds up, you know, it all holds up wonderfully, and um, and that that I think is a uh, it's just why people are gravitating back toward it. They're like, damn, you know, there's something good going on there, you know, mm-hmm. and whether you know whether it's the stuff in emo or stuff that, that sounds like the '90s, like you know, Speedy Ortiz is a band to me that. You know, you, you could have played that stuff in '93, '94, and it would have fit right in. You know, it just, it, it just, to me, it sounds like '93, '94. Mm-hmm. It feels like it. So, um, you know, and I love that. I am mean, now just being old. You know, I go back to listen to you know the music of the youth. <laughs> but it's like that. That stuff to me is, um, you know, I, I and I, I think though, but to your, to your point, um, you know, and I wonder, you know, I think you've helped um, a lot. Uh, you know, kind of relighting the, you know, the, the, the fire to a certain extent. Um, and obviously all that, that new wave of, of, of quote unquote emo bands that, that's doing it, some doing it pretty well, um, uh, you know, have, have definitely helped open that door and people are going back and back and back and back. Um, so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's cool. Man. It, it's very, very cool. And full circle, I just texted John from Lazy Kane and I said, Hey, I'm talking with Barry. He said, what? Love that band. Tell him I said, hello. <laughs> <laughs> We played one night in Atlanta. We we played. We ended up playing. Um, we, we played uh, uh, catch with a with a hard baseball um, in a dark parking lot, and and you couldn't see anything. And and how you hear the guy throw the ball, and you put the glove up and hope to God the ball hit the glove. And maybe right before it got to the glove in your face, you'd see it and grab it. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Now, guys, everyone listening, anyone that's younger, that is what you do before you had a cell phone. You played catch in the pitch black. That's just what you did. God, nothing else to do. It was was, 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 was sheer boredom for like 23 hours of the day. And then I just thought it was euphoria for an hour. Well, cool, Barrett. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I I really appreciate it. I I, I appreciate you taking the time, too. And, um, and uh, let me know if I can ever do anything. Um, and if Amber decides to get back together for playing New York, show, you'll be the first to know. Sometimes-